for great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts. The TNT Shop is now open at tntradio.live. Patrick Henningsen talks on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, welcome. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to TNT. Today's News Talk, I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. we got two hours of news and analysis we're going to bring to you here. We've got a powerful lineup today. Also, we're going to hit some of the breaking stories globally. We'll get some up-to-date uh, reports from the Middle East. Uh, and also, we're going to talk about the U.S. politics as well. And we're going to go into Europe in the second hour. We'll uh, invite onto the stage uh, Freddie Ponton, who's going to be joining us uh, from France uh, for an update on the genocide convention, the case uh, lodged by South Africa. Uh, things are now in motion. The legal gears are now engaged. We'll hear, hear more about that from Freddie uh, in the second hour. And also Basil Valentine will be uh, coming in for some hot takes uh, and breaking news as well, probably uh, in the first hour, later in the first hour. I want to welcome to the stage straight away, though, a uh, very special guest. Maximilian Hess is joining us. Uh, he's from the Emmentena Advisory uh, Political Risk consultancy group in london he's also uh, associated with the uh, foreign policy research institute and has written extensively across many fantastic publications uh, right across online and in print as well he's joining us on the line right now maximilian welcome to the program thank you so much for having me patrick i look forward to our conversation today Thank you for joining us, Max. And um, uh, your work is uh, extremely interesting, also very thought-provoking. I know you uh, you have a, a very wide interest in terms of geopolitics, uh, and I'm hoping we can touch on some of the important issues. But there's no bigger issue right now, Max, in the world uh, that people are very worried that uh, we're very close on the doomsday clock uh, to perhaps a multinational conflagration that may uh, it may include That's nuclear true. weapons. Um, so this is one of the big worries that people have. And uh, I know I want to get your thoughts on this general conversation. Uh, we hear this talk in the West, in Washington, we're ready to fight a three-front war, uh, as if this was some sort of you know routine that the United States has been gearing up for. Is this what we really want? What's your view on this uh, from your professional perspective? Certainly. Uh, I don't think that right now the United States is anywhere near a position to fight a, a three-front war, let alone a major global conflict. Uh, the U.S. military has really positioned itself to respond to uh, smaller-scale regional conflicts, predominantly in, in the Middle East in recent decades. Uh, although, of course, the U.S. military machine is on a level that is unparalleled by any other power, uh, including its global force footprint ranging from Asia to Africa to the Americas. Um, but as we've seen right now in the conflict uh, in, in Ukraine, uh, where Russia has dedicated its state's entire industrial output, which is only a fraction of what the West and even the U.S. alone can produce, um, but it has been willing to it, it undergo that kind of state militarization that the West has been unwilling to. And right now we see a lack of support for financing for additional uh, support for Kyiv. Um, but the real you know, reality is, is leaving aside uh, what the right decision is for uh, what the West and the United States should do in its strategy in supporting Ukraine, um, is that it cannot produce enough ammunition for that kind of a conflict. And certainly if that conflict were to spread or include larger land warfares elsewhere. We've also 
seen a lot of changes in military strategy and tactics in recent years that raise real questions about the U.S.'s global um, force positioning. Right now, we see that in particular in Yemen with the Houthis able to carry out these attacks, uh, just, you know, despite them having a fraction of the cost of, of uh, what the U.S. Navy has down there. And finally, in particular, there and as we've seen come out of the conflict in Ukraine, in particular with regards to the U.S.'s Navy, the Blue Sea Fleet that's as opposed to enable a global force projection around the world, uh, one of the most remarkable changes in 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 military posture and positioning out of the conflict in Ukraine has been you. Ukraine's ability to essentially keep the Russian Black Sea Fleet penned in through the use of naval drones. And that's something that certainly Iran and Russia have their own naval drones um, and could be used against the U.S. in a hypothetical global conflict that would really weaken its ability to project uh, power. Max, uh, I, I get the feeling like we could be having this conversation during the interwar period, how complicated it is to manage an empire globally, how expensive it is, uh, the interdependency, putting down uh, rebellions, uh, managing all the waterways and things like this. Is, is this is this is this something the U.S. is kind of dealing with here? Are they grappling with similar problems that the British uh, were facing uh, during the interwar period and the, the sort of twilight of the British Empire? Uh, what are your thoughts on that sort of historical comparison? Yeah, I think uh, at least in particular with the U.S. dynamic domestically, there's a lot of apt comparisons to the British interwar period, you know, political tumult, parties realigning themselves around new leaders. We had that, of course, in the UK with Ramsey MacDonald and uh, the rise of new political forces throughout uh, the sort of 1918 to, to 1930s period. But in terms of the US's global posture and positioning, I think there's a lot more overlap uh, with the British experience post-World War II, uh, when the US was, of course, the, the rising and, and at that point, essentially dominant global power as a result of how uh, market relationships, defense relationships had changed in the aftermath of the Second World War, the need to pay for the reconstruction of Europe, uh, almost entirely financed um, by the United States, and the emergence of the Soviet Union uh, as this global rival with uh, international aspirations. Um, I wouldn't say that the Soviet Union and, and the People's Republic of China, despite both being communist states, uh, are are uh, wholly similar on uh, that uh, field. I think that China's international ambitions uh, have to be understood very differently from the Soviet Union's. It's much more about uh, expanding China's interests than it is about expanding uh, this ideological communist model. You know, although the People's Republic of China is communist, it's, um, you know, uh, they themselves describe it as communism with Chinese characteristics and I see the uh, emphasis very much on the latter. Um, but really, Britain's experience then had to do with managing this global empire that it still had from pre-World War II uh, that it was no longer able to afford uh, and that it very much struggled with its perception of itself and its role of what the United Kingdom was supposed to do in the world. So we saw, you know, slow decolonization, as it's called initially, the British withdrawal, uh, with some very rapid steps in between, right? The withdrawal from uh, India and, and, and what became Pakistan. Um, we've seen the U.S. withdraw from key global conflicts around the world, Afghanistan. Um, I would certainly say that one was probably much more in the U.S. interest and long overdue um, than, than, say, the British hasty withdrawal from uh, India and Pakistan. But, you know, a lot of those similarities uh, are there in terms of the ramifications 
implications that it had. Questions were then very prominent for the United Kingdom about what role it should continue to play in, for example, the Middle East. Uh, of course, you know, uh, in 1945, uh, Palestine and Israel were still um, mandates of, of the British Empire and under the United Nations. And in particular, one that's often forgotten, but was Britain's role in uh, Southeast Asia, um, in particular uh, in, in the conflicts that, that developed then in Indonesia and Malaysia and Britain's attempts to hold on, not to mention all of Africa. And the U.S. right now uh, is in a very similar position. It's been trying to undertake this pivot to Asia, trying to retain that great power status, compete with China, um, much as it was uh, with uh, um, the Soviet Union in the aftermath of, uh, of the Second World War. But uh, really, you know, there, there are key debates going on right now about to what extent uh, defending Europe is in the United States interest. You know, there have been reports just today uh, that uh, apparently former President Trump said that the U.S. would be unwilling to, to defend Europe, regardless of NATO commitments, um, if there was a major conflict there, uh, how it should position itself in, in Asia with regards to that rising Chinese picture. And then, of course, dealing with global terrorism risks out of the Middle East and Africa, um, where a lot of political change has not necessarily made that easier for the U.S. And certainly in the Middle East, dominating right now its commitment to uh, defending Israel, regardless of sort of whether Israel itself is is. Um, potentially leading to an escalation of the conflict that Hamas certainly began on the 7th of October uh, and with regards to uh, Iran, which had kind of faded in, in uh, at least the you know early years of the Biden administration, um, but is certainly now very much a live question because its response to the conflict between Israel and Hezbollah in Lebanon uh, and the events um, in, in Yemen, where it is certainly just as it is with Hezbollah, the main ally of the Houthi movement there, uh, and ultimately the source of these weapons that are being used to disrupt global shipping um, uh, is a real pressing question. And there are, of course, very different uh, views in, in Washington in particular uh, on, on how that should be addressed. So let's go back to, to Ukraine, because when we're talking about war and peace, we're talking about the prospects or the, the risks of World War III or that type of uh, escalation. Uh, it seems to me you know, the West, NATO and Russia, this seems to be like a very um, uh, dangerous flashpoint that's uh, emerged. And right now, how do you see this? We can talk about this from a political perspective from Washington, but is there an out here for Washington? Uh, a lot of people who've looked at this closely, who, who in a realist sense, realize that this was, it seems to be a bit of a losing endeavor definitely for ukraine it's been a net loss on so many levels but is there an exit strategy because it's clear that they don't really have time in washington or brussels but russia seems to have all the time in the world uh to shore up its national security uh interests and so where where is where does that leave the west where does that leave the united states in an election year Certainly, uh, you know, right now, I think the short answer is there is no exit strategy for Ukraine. The, the war has, of course, been been terrible and devastating, uh, getting invaded by a neighbor with you know far larger uh, military powers. Um, that is perhaps unsurprising. You know, Biden initially in 2022 gave a speech in, in Warsaw where he said, you know, we, we will support Ukraine um, until all of Ukraine is liberated and, and essentially gave a no limits declaration. 
to that. Uh, I think if the U.S. does pull back now, uh, that will really raise a lot of questions about the U.S.'s security guarantees elsewhere and its commitment to other partners. Those are questions that will weigh not only on European countries and NATO, but also on Middle Eastern countries like Saudi Arabia, uh, which views the U.S. as its primary security guarantee in the event of uh, war with um, uh, Iran, their sort of great fear of, of regional conflict. Um, so, you know, the U.S. has to balance that with, of course, the costs of continuing to support Ukraine um, and uh, making important political decisions around that, that so far Washington has really, due to its partisan gridlock, been been unable to, to get to. So, uh, you know, I think it's a real question that American voters need to be asking themselves over, over how uh, prominent this is. There are going to be two very different approaches on offer ultimately in the November election. Um, you know, I, I think Biden is trying to signal that he is willing to kind of find an out, but that may be uh, a, a relatively weak look for him and, and may anger some parts of his base going into the election, uh, whereas uh, former President Trump was almost certainly going to be the Republican nominee again. Um, you know, he uh, has criticized the Ukrainian government and Zelensky much more. He's also much more malleable in his positions. I think that if the um, delivery of some new aid that is coming in the coming weeks, including importantly F-16 fighter jets for Ukraine, um, does change the battlefield, he, he may change his approach as well. But he certainly has put himself forward as the candidate who can uh, reach an agreement with Vladimir Putin. Um, the question is, is would that agreement be more costly uh, than um, some of the other forms of either continuing support or uh, pulling it back and having those ramifications. And, and those are um, very, very tough questions to judge at the moment. You know, I would say, despite, you know, professionally being concerned with these, um, one of the problems that a lot of politicians have is they pretend that they know all the answers and that this will definitely have this impact and this will, will have the others. Um, and, and I certainly don't think that's true. And particularly in this changing global environment where not only is there the risk of Russia Western conflict because of the NATO penumbra around the region and Russia's uh, view of territory in Ukraine now as as a next and 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 in Putin's view, uh, de jure um, Russian territory that then applies uh, under its nuclear. Um, uh, um, protection umbrella, but also out of the Middle East. And, uh, you know, the, the risk that conflict between uh, Israel and Tehran um, what, beginning in either Lebanon or in Yemen um, could really spread to a regional conflict that un undoubtedly brings in the United States and other partners as well. Iran has given Russia lots of defensive support and military material for its war in Ukraine. They would expect a returning of the favor. Um, uh, and in some ways, I in, at least for 2020, for um in part because we've seen every side's kind of lines in the ukrainian conflict i worry more in terms of the potential for that global escalation would come out of the middle east rather than necessarily out of russia and ukraine and just uh lastly we've got a couple minutes left but what about europe do you think the economic situation in europe certainly germany's been hit pretty hard uh, over the last two years as a result of this conflict how how is that playing because it seems like nato relies on this solidarity at least that's on the surface when you see leon stoltenberg or van der leyen making pronouncements they talk about this unity never been stronger but how strong is it and how much does the economics play into that 
Sure. Uh, you know, I think um, Putin was very surprised by the level of unity that he saw in um, February 2022 in the aftermath of the initial invasion. I think that he had uh, assumed that some of his cultivation of political partners and and, and dialogue uh, across the bloc would have found him more allies, um, you know, not just in Hungary, but but in Italy and elsewhere that proved unsuccessful, but could still very much prove an issue going forward. The German economy is certainly on the way back to being the sick man of Europe in large part because its uh, government had for years built up the strategy of trading with Russia, hoping that that would uh, lower tensions and building up its own dependency on Russian natural gas. Um, however, in some way, Russia is in a similarly weak position in that it dominated the European gas market and does not do so in China and has to compete in a global market uh, under sanctions to find new outputs for that. So, you know, the Russian economy right now is really running on the fumes of a war machine and is, is certainly, um, you know, not a place that many people uh, um, are, are going to open up businesses or, or even locals, sadly, um, are engaged in that. So, you know, I think the the question is, is really uh, to what extent are Germans and other Europeans able to balance those short-term economic costs um, with uh, their long-term security interests? And there, I think that we will see um, Putin in particular try to raise the pressure um, in similar ways to what he did in 2022 with shutting off the gas pipelines. You know, I would be looking towards a lot of oil volatility in, in uh, 2024 uh, with the potential for both the conflicts in the Middle East and Putin's weaponization of those own supplies um, to directly impact them. We will see in the European parliamentary elections more anti-establishment parties um, do very well. I still think that the you know main conservative bloc, the EPP, will likely win and, and the overall largest share of the vote and stay at the core of governance in the European Parliament. Um, but one of the big challenges they face is a lack of new ideas and a way to sort of reshift the economic model, whether that be in Germany itself or in, in Europe more broadly, for whom Germany is the economic engine. Um, and so, you know, while it may not be crunch time in the elections this year, I think the failure to put forward new ideas. Um, and to engage in, in some of the criticism of the failures of, of the recent past um, gives a poor medium-term outlook as well, and, and one that is worrying even beyond the immediate risks that we face now. Good. Thank you very much. Maximilian Hess, uh, London-based political risk consultant. Thank you for joining us on TNT, today's news talk this week. Much appreciated. I hope we can pick up the threads on these conversations in the future. There's a lot to Certainly. talk about, a lot of ground to cover. But thank you, Maximilian. We're going to take a break right now with TNT, today's news talk. And when we come back, we're going to be hitting uh, some of the top of the hour's news headlines that we were discussed. We'll comment on some of those. Uh, plus, we'll get into a breaking updates uh, from the Middle East. All this and more coming up. Stay right there. TNT Radio's James Freeman. We have new revised figures from the Office for National Statistics showing that legal, that's not illegal, that's legal, net migration to the UK has witnessed one of the largest increases on record. Three quarters of a million additional people are now living in the UK in the space of just one year. A huge number that comes just three years after we left the European Union. Now, I didn't vote for Brexit um, because of immigration. I voted because of democracy, but millions did. 
vote because they think too many people are coming into the country, which makes what the government has allowed to happen an absolute two fingers up to the people and democracy. Another example, if we needed another, of how the government does the exact opposite to what the people want and vote for. The Freeman Report and James Freeman on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Proved a no-not breach. We want the subject to be on display. Doing the walk of shame, full visual impact. Any questions? Are we becoming a police state? Government told American citizens they couldn't go to church on Sunday. For the first time in my life, I'm saying to myself, am I going to get a knock at the door? FBI warrant, come to the door now! The Patriot Act and FISA were used against Donald Trump. These individuals have commissioned the biggest propaganda play in U.S. history. They don't go after the people that rigged the election. They go after the people that want to find out what the hell happened. We don't need to have a crime. What we need is a person to look at. And then we go find out what crime you did. FBI! Our focus is shifting. Our main priority as a bureau is going to be domestic terrorism. It really paints anybody who's right of center. If you're a pro-life, pro-family Catholic, they define you as radical. These are anti-government. We have freedom of religion and freedom of speech. Violent extremists, and they must be dealt with. We can do anything we want. This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to be connecting uh, with our correspondent, Basil Valentine, shortly. But a uh, great segment, a lot to think about there with Maximilian Hess. Uh, he is uh, steeped in all sorts of information and uh, strategy regarding global markets, politics. Fascinating conversation. But he brought up uh, the oil market. And, you know, we I want to delve into that because it's so important. Uh, as oil swings, this affects so many other sectors of the market, wherever you are in the world, especially if you're in the United States, uh, but also in Europe, this is going to affect you one way or the other. And uh, when the billionaires talk, uh, usually it's a good idea to listen. And one of those is Oleg Deripaska. And he's opined on this. We mentioned this yesterday during our segment with Blake Lovewell when we were talking about crypto and finance. And he's saying he's predicting a, a oil price crash. This is interesting because it's coming at the same time when there's never been a greater risk uh, for a choking of the global oil supply, either Straits of Hormuz, that's the entrance into the Persian Gulf, or the Bab el-Mendeb Straits moving into the Red Sea. So that global supply of oil, at least a large percentage of it, coming out of the Middle East and then spreading out to the various uh, destinations around the world. If that's threatened, uh, of course, that's going to cause a spike in oil prices. Why is Oleg Deripaska... Uh, predicting a crash. So he's saying global oil markets are heading for a crash. It's 20% off crude this year. I don't know what uh, he's talking about in terms of specific spikes or averages. But anyway, Deripaska's warning comes after oil prices fell 4% on Monday. Sharp price cuts announced as top exporter Saudi Arabia 
has uh, given a little bit of a heads up as to what their exports might be uh, in February too. So oil has rebound, uh, rebounded since then, $72 a barrel. So that's one of the sort of standards there. But what's he saying here? Cheaper oil, which will fall by another 20% on the global market this year and will be a good help in fighting inflation. This is true. This is true because when oil goes up, the price of all goods and services go up. So what's good for the global economy in a time of high inflation? Certainly lower oil prices helps. It does help. It allows businesses uh, and allows people who have expenses uh, to be able to curtail those. And listen, they're going to pass on the cost of, uh, of a price spike in oil or any other fuel that's going to get passed on to the consumer every time. You also have to remember government as well uses these commodities, uses these utilities. So if you're getting any services from the government, you're being charged council tax or local tax. It's a, a spike in oil prices, a raise in inflation. This is also going to raise your fees, raise your taxes. All of these things need to go up as a result. So they say wages might go up too. But Deripaska is pointing this out. I think it's worth touching on there uh and, and on top of this uh he's also quoting here how eu countries along with the united states and russia are also as they're struggling with high inflation price rises uh which have compelled central banks to push rate hikes on interest and to help contain the inflation in 2023 all of that can be thrown out of kilter uh with some major events uh like uh, a war in the middle east expanding into a possibly a world war situation so this is something that you, everybody's got to be concerned about and is very interesting because they've tried very hard to shut russia out of the global oil markets uh, following the special military operation at the end of february which many will regard as the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, but following this, they tried to shut Russia completely out of the global markets, uh, put price caps on Russian oil and things like that. They tried to impose all of these things to try to hem in Russia, to try to contain uh, Russian uh, economic performance and reach into markets and then fill that with U.S. substitutes like fracking LNG gas, which has gone into Europe in a big way, and that's also cut in on uh, Qatar's market share into the European market as well. But of course, it's completely shut out Russia from the European gas market. This has huge effects, negative effects on the European economy. Freddie Ponton has talked a lot about this uh, in the segments that he's done with us. He actually did a really good, uh, I'll talk to him about this in the second hour. He appeared on Crosstalk with Peter Lavelle, great uh, talk show, political talk show panels panel discussion show on RT International. Freddie was talking about some of these issues uh, just a couple of days ago. So these are all in the news right now. So everybody is on tender hooks now. What's going to happen? Is there going to be a black swan event uh, in February? I don't really believe in black swan events. I just believe in events. And they're not black swans if you've been paying attention uh, to what's going on there. So in other news, uh, we'll just touch on a few other things here. Uh, on the BRICS front, uh, we have some developments which we try to cover. Uh, BRICS to create a new global trade balance. Uh, Nigerian NGO CEO says. So uh, a lot of people are also weighing in on the idea that there might be some major African economies uh, coming into the BRICS orbit. Another, another one of those, of course, is Nigeria. 
by population, Nigeria is not only the largest country uh, in Africa uh, in terms, and also its oil wealth as well as nothing, uh, nothing small, uh, but also in terms of uh, their influence uh, globally, geopolitically, uh, BRICS might offer a platform for a country like Nigeria that's normally uh, confined to the basement of the African Union in terms of global influence. They're not a member of the G7. They won't be invited to any of these uh, Western clubs. But uh, BRICS could provide a platform for a lot of African countries. You see South Africa is already taking advantage of it. Look at how they've raised their profile step-by-step uh, over the last few years, right now, they're leading, uh, one of the leading voices now, shaping potentially Middle East politics, shaping global politics by invoking the Genocide Convention against Israel and really butting up against the United States, the hard power of the United States by doing so. That's no small feat. So you can see from the African nations, there's a lot of new players emerging. Another uh, important African country besides South Africa and Nigeria, Nigeria is a potential powerhouse on so many different levels but another one which you need to keep an eye on as well as ethiopia now ethiopia has been let's say handicapped uh, severely over the years they've lost their coastline uh through the creation of states like Djibouti uh and eritrea uh but the country is still resource rich uh it's got a credible history it's got an incredible culture so ethiopia is bound to play an important role uh in the future of africa but also within the BRICS framework and this is all part of a wider uh, analysis of a multipolar world that's emerging. This is going to be a big theme in 2024. You're going to see more about this. People are going to be talking more about it. Certainly, we're going to be talking uh, more about it as well. And uh, we'll be bringing on guests uh, periodically uh, to build on this topic because I think this is important. This is where the world is going right now. We want to keep make sure that you, our listeners, our audience here on this program, the Patrick Henningsen Show on TNT, today's news talk, that you are up to date, that you're on the edge of this geopolitical uh, discussion. So we're going to do our best to bring you into that conversation in the coming weeks and months. It'll be very, very important indeed. Now, we're also going to be touching on a few other things. Uh, we'll be talking more about uh, advances in the area of space. Uh, you know about Elon Musk's privatized uh, carving out of a huge part of the space market in the United States. Starlink as well, providing internet access via satellites. A lot of people have mixed opinions on this. Certainly we can have debates on that as well. Uh, but NASA, is NASA going to still be the preeminent go-to space agency in the United States? Are they going to be calling the shots in terms of development of technology and exploration of our sort of near area uh, regarding the moon, for instance, regarding Mars? All of these questions are still lingering in the air, or is this going to be a totally privatized uh, affair? And already we're seeing some interesting problems that have emerged. NASA postpones the launch of its new rockets. Now, you have to remember, for years, for years, Russia, Russia has been providing a taxi service to the International Space Station on the back of its rockets for international astronauts, including taking U.S. staff and astronauts up to the uh, International Space Station, the ISS. So, and right now, NASA's been pressured because of sanctions, and they can't do this 
traditional work with Russia, teaming up in the international cooperation and using Russian uh, Soyuz rockets to bring our astronauts into outer space. Uh, now NASA is having to, you know, develop its own. So there's really a big it was a big hype launch this week. Artemis one and two lunar missions expected to take off in 2024, 2025. And so they had some big tests uh, ready here. NASA has had to delay two of its flagship missions uh, meant to take humans back to the moon. It's all part of a process to bring humans back to the moon. Why is it taking so long? That's another discussion. Maybe we'll pick that one apart in a future segment. But the U.S. Space Agency says that the Artemis two and three missions will now take place uh, not in 2024. Nope, they're going to be delayed. They're going to kick the can down the road uh, to 2025 and 2026. So that's going to be interesting. And the next stage of the program, uh, I, I, I assume that's the human stage, 2028. Why does this take so long? I thought we put uh, humans on the moon in like 1969 or something like that. The Apollo missions with 1960s tech. How's it difficult? I mean, we got to wait another what? How many are they saying? Another another four years. Another four years. So you mark that on your calendar. You might see you might see a manned mission of some description to the moon, but it's going to be in four years. So anyway, <laughs> I don't know what to think about this. It's crazy. It's absolutely mad. So anyway, that's going on in the space program. I'm sure we can talk more about that uh, in in future segments as well. We'll cover some of these uh, salient issues. There's also a lot of developments in US politics on the January 6th story. And what's really nice to see is this thing is completely falling apart. We've called it out from the absolute beginning what a fraud this whole thing was. This was clearly a federal government-led uh, operation to entrap as many Trump supporters. And they're throwing people in jail, giving them like sentences for federal crimes, some people getting 15 years, invoking uh, the Insurrection Act. and Just calling that an insurrection is a joke. It was a protest. This got out of hand. There was never any danger of the U.S. government being overthrown in any way possible. Uh, and now, now they've managed to, uh, one of the people that was one of the ringleaders of this, who people are accusing was a Fed, is a guy named Ray Epps. And uh, he just conveniently fell off the radar of U.S. officials, which was interesting. He fell off the radar of U.S. officials. Uh, they didn't want to arrest him. It wasn't even a suspect. It wasn't. It was only because of public pressure. And people like Tucker Carlson, I'll give him credit too, he raised that issue very early, saying, why is nobody uh, arresting or pulling this guy in for questioning Ray Epps? Uh, clearly looks like an agent provocateur. And then Ray Epps goes and sues all these networks saying, oh, they defamed my character, whatever, oh, I'm innocent, whatever. Then suddenly there's a federal uh, investigation, the indictment, and they arrest Ray Epps. And then after all that, just this week, they slapped him on the wrist. I don't know what he got. He was literally just shouting to people, you need to get inside the Capitol. He was inciting a riot, clearly, on camera. Uh, so what happens to him? 12 months probation, and I don't know, what did he get, a $500 fine? Something like that? I mean, okay. There's some people who have been in jail there for like, I don't know, they're getting like 10-year sentences. They might get off with four years with good behavior or whatever, but they're stealing years from these people's lives for basically what amounts to trespassing. That's a misdemeanor. 
shouldn't be a federal insurrection crime. It's ridiculous, completely over the top. That kind of stuff happens in uh, banana republics, doesn't happen in the civilized world, but unfortunately, that's what we're dealing with on, on, on this occasion. So the January 6th thing is falling to pieces. That's an important part, by the way. The whole January 6th story, when, when you see, when it, if Donald Trump becomes the Republican nominee, that's going to be the main attack vector from Democrats. It's going to be January 6th. Do you want Donald Trump back in the White House? This is what he did last time. He tried to overthrow the government with an insurrection, January 6th. Is that what we want? America doesn't want that. We're better than that. I, you can totally see how the talking points are, are going to go on CNN and all these networks. So that's that's kind of how the conversation's going. So the, it's important to preserve the narrative of January 6th, and it's absolutely getting trashed right now. The official narrative is getting stomped on. And I, I don't think it's going to be any currency in it at all uh, by the time the general election cycle rolls around, which will be after August, after the conventions uh, choose their presidents. In some cases, they're going to be choosing presidents, which the uh, voter didn't get a chance to choose. I'm talking about Democrats. We'll see what happens on the Republican side. Certainly a lot to analyze there. Let's take a break, however, uh, with the network with TNT, today's news talk. And on the other side, hopefully we can connect uh, Basil Valentine. Stay right there. While serving in Vietnam, a grenade took my ability to see. Today, I'm a sculptor creating new visions. Now, my fingers are my eyes. As a veteran, I know the challenges of life can be great. In my art, turning a lump of clay into something beautiful, that means a lot to me. Life is like that. We each must use what we can to make things better. DAV helps veterans like Michael get the benefits they've earned. They help more than a million veterans every year in life-changing ways. Now, I show others how they can create something with their own hands. With support from DAV, more veterans can shape their lives into a thing of beauty. My victory is bringing beauty into the world. Michael Naranjo, may your victories inspire many more. Support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. The next time you think you can illegally handle your mobile phone while driving and get away with it, think again. Phone detection cameras are in operation on New South Wales roads. Hello. So if you're driving and illegally handle your mobile phone, you can stop it or cop it. With a compelling perspective on global politics, this is The Patrick Henningsen Show on TNT Radio. All right, folks, welcome back. Welcome back. It is a, a glorious Wednesday here. You're watching and listening to TNT Today's News Talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. Thank you for joining us and a great discussion earlier with Maximilian Hess. We're talking about geopolitics in the first hour. Uh, we're going to continue that. We'll get some updates, too. We'll get some reactions from Basil Valentine on that first segment, but we'll also get some updates on what's going on in the world right now. Joining us is Basil Valentine on the line. Basil, how are you? Hey, well, thank you, Patrick. Good to be with you. And hello to our listeners all around the world. 
Basil, in terms of uh, breaking updates right now, uh, I want to get your take on that. I don't know if you had a chance to hear the uh, initial interview with uh, Maximilian, but uh, big concerns, of course, of where things are going to go with Ukraine. And this is just going to continue to be a liability, I think, for the Biden administration this election year, because as Maximilian says, there's really no viable exit uh, strategy. It's very difficult. They've really got themselves into a bind on this, and I think it's going to have political ramifications uh, at home in the United States, perhaps in Britain too. Who knows? But uh, your your thoughts on all this? Well, I think you know the political ramifications stem partly, if not largely, from the fact that America is completely skint, borasic. There is no money. It is turning into a failed state. It is borrowing uh, eye-watering sums of money uh, from the so-called Federal Reserve, the Chinese or whatever, uh, in order to fuel an unwinnable war. It's completely insane. While all the while, American cities are turning into a zombie apocalypse and the southern border remains wide open with major crises now, democratic mayors and governors across the states um, saying, um, you know, we, we can't take any more of these immigrants and Biden is still sitting on his hands. Um, so there's no off-ramp at the moment, as you say, for the Americans. The rhetoric coming out of Washington, coming out of the, uh, you know, really, frankly, idiotic talking heads like Lindsey Graham and Mike Pompeo, is that somehow, unless Putin is stopped in Ukraine, he's going to invade Poland and Czechoslovakia. It's absolutely the biggest load of numbers. I don't know if they believe it or whether they're simply saying that in order to keep the money going. You've got the added complication of the whole sort of military-industrial complex uh, getting used to these endless billions of dollars um, yeah they you know for goodness knows what no no you're saying i was just saying they they, they're constantly invoking uh world war ii tropes like it's the sudetenland this is that moment when hitler you know invaded the sudetenland if we don't stop this new hitler uh then europe will fall and they'll you know march to the tanks and everything all the way to you know normandy again like that's literally the talk we get it's just so ridiculous it's so stupid it really is and and it's not borne out in reality i mean if the russians had wanted to advance further than they already have in ukraine they would have done so so um yeah i mean i think the chickens are going to come home to roost for biden this year very very seriously his base is crumbling it's as simple as that progressives are not willing to support genocide joe you know he's going to get hounded wherever he goes around the country the strength of feeling about the situation in the middle east is quite unprecedented i mean the only sort of historical um parallel we've got really is uh, the protest about the vietnam war who can forget the uh, kent university shooting and uh, various other, you know, the, the major anti-war movement there was then. This is easily the biggest anti-war movement since the early nine, late 1960s in the, in the United States, far, far bigger than the uh, Iraq war shenanigans. So 
for a so-called Democrat president and his uh, Secretary of State, who you know went round the Middle East again, um, talking about the hostages. Uh, he he did um, you know he rubbed up against uh, the intransigence of the Israelis. He's trying to Blinken is trying to get the Saudis back into the Abraham Accords, uh, trying to sort of bring the rest of the Middle East on board with some sort of post-war reconstruction plan for Gaza. And Blinken is talking about a Palestinian state. Um, but when he was asked at the press conference. Uh, what Netanyahu had said about a Palestinian state, he said, I can't speak for him. In other words, he dodged it. He knows that Netanyahu's completely ruled out a Palestinian state. So what he's going to try and do, I think, I hate to have to say it, but it's going to be sort of a continuation of the last 30 years, which is, uh, I mean, personally, I think there are alternatives to this. But, uh, which is basically that the Arab states are mollified by simply by talk of a Palestinian state. Okay, so it just gets kicked into the long grass once again. Uh, it, you know, it's only ever the sort of vaguest intentions. We know the Israelis are irreparably opposed to it, um, and without uh, you know wholesale regime change, without societal change in in uh, Israel, that's going to remain the case. The only thing that can bring about that about is swinging sanctions. I mean, the total political, economic, and cultural you know, isolation of Israel may bring them to heat. But of course, there's no way the United States are going to sign up for that. On the contrary, Blinken has effectively greenlit the continuation of the massacres, which people need to remember are every bit as bloody now as they were at the start of the war. Hundreds of people are being killed every day. Death toll officially now up near 25,000. And uh, Biden said that, you know, his priority is that Israel does not suffer another attack like October the 7th by Hamas. That's code for saying, carry on, Israel. That's what that means. Carry on killing. Well, let me, let me, carry on maiming the children. Let me ask you this quick. You're, you're a canny political, uh, you know, operator, uh, Basil, and how you look at these things you, you i know you take a lot a lot of different factors into account as to kind of seeing which way the political winds are going to blow on this so if 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 genocide joe is a hashtag that's trending and there are young progressives in america that are using this on the street they're literally i've seen it on placards i've seen it chanted people are shouting at him in public genocide joe so this thing is clearly sticking so if you're if you're donald trump uh, or you know any Republican challenger, let's just assume it's going to be Donald Trump. Um, you can totally use this. He's literally ready to just be pushed, and he'll fall over and shatter into a thousand pieces. I mean, it's very easy to to hit him in this weak spot. But will Trump take advantage of that? He tried the Abrahamic Accords with his son Jared Kushner, running that whole farrago with Netanyahu. It seems to have failed miserably. Or is he going to still kind of try to rescue some of those old artifacts from Trump first term uh, in how he does battle with Biden? Or are they, is he going to take Biden's position and be an ardent Zionist on this? Because it seems to me like there's an, a, an opportunity to be the peacemaker, but will Trump do it? Or is the pressure in America too great? What do you think? That is what used to be called the $64,000 question, Patrick. It really is. Trump's instincts are to be a deal maker and a peacemaker. 
he isn't by nature, you know, to, to war, to war, you know, Fredonia must go to war. That isn't his nature. He, he wants peace and prosperity. I mean, very unusual these days to hear politicians say that they were running on peace and prosperity, which he did in 2020. Now, whether or not that means that he's willing to put sufficient pressure on the Israelis to stop the genocide, make concessions in terms of the Palestinian state, that's another matter. But his instinct is to be more conciliatory. And I think his instinct is also much more humane towards the Palestinian people. I may be wrong, but Biden and Blinken are obviously totally callous for all their weasel words. I mean, only today, Blinken met with Mahmoud Abbas, the octogenarian billionaire who claims to represent the Palestinian people. Um, and uh, according to his uh, post on X, Lincoln met Abbas to discuss ongoing efforts to minimize civilian harm in Gaza. I mean, it's, I find it absolutely repulsive that he is comes out with things like that while continuing to supply uh, bombs, ammunition, everything else, and green lighting, the destruction that we see. Because he may talk about efforts to minimize civilian harm in Gaza, but we know from their statements and their actions that the Israelis are doing everything they can to maximize civilian harm in Gaza. You know, I've just read about a whole family murdered in an airstrike, 15 of them in Rafa. 167 were murdered overnight last night. These are unbelievable numbers yeah. to keep pulling on day by day. You know, I'm going to tell you this is that yesterday, the last 24 hours has been uh, the deadly one of the deadliest days, if not the deadliest days in terms of uh, dead Palestinian civilians. So they haven't let up on this. It's, yeah. it's, it has intensified. It's, it's expanding. So you know, you're not wrong there, and it's 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 probably a lot worse than a lot of us are able to even comprehend. Uh, with the oh, true, if the true it, numbers I are to be known. Not only the two numbers, but also because I do think it's important to continue to highlight the scale of the suffering in Gaza. Um, I, I've seen aid workers and hospital workers saying that you know the hospitals are only you know, three or four still operational in any way, shape, or form. They are littered with severely injured, dead, and dying people in a real hellscape. There's hardly a square foot of floor anywhere that there isn't an injured person on you know it's carnage on a scale that we can only imagine not that we, we, we want to imagine it because it's so absolutely hellish and that's what's going on now and lincoln and for that matter sunak bondelayan and all the other creeps in western capitals are letting it happen it is still being aided and abetted by the so-called West. Um, the Declassified published, uh, I mean, I think it's an old article from um, former British Foreign Minister Alan Duncan writing in his memoirs, the Israelis think they control the Foreign Office, and they do. That's what Alan Duncan wrote. And of course, the, the Israelis control the State Department. I mean, Blinken himself, uh, you know, when he first arrived at Tel Aviv uh, after October the 7th, said, I come here as a Jew. So, he he did. He said, did say that. That were the first words uh, when the whole October seventh broke out. He flew to Israel, and those were the first words out of his mouth. And you know, you'd like to think that the top diplomat of the United States of America would appear to be objective, maybe. You know, uh, at a time like that, even if he's not, 
we understand that people have their uh, allegiances and alliances, but at least go through the motions and do the, the exactly. theater of it, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Somebody said, somebody said on X, who is representing the American people, mm. you know? Well, uh, the vast majority who wants an immediate ceasefire. I want to I want to give you another uh, angle too on this. You know the uh, Gulf states, uh, Saudi Arabia, the other Gulf monarchies. The leadership uh, tends to they still want to pursue normalization with uh, Israel, and they're not taking any stern actions or sanctioning Israel or anything. But meanwhile, the populations in their country are totally pro-Palestinian, and want something. So, do you see how this has been engineered, Basil? Is that the United States, very cleverly through the Abraham Accords, is is creating a gulf between the monarch leaderships of these countries and the people, and it very much increasing the possibility that of of uh, you know revolution or color revolution in these in these yes. Gulf state monarchies. So normally, what the Gulf states do in response to that threat is they crack down more; they become more authoritarian, and the U.S. always and Britain support them in that effort. So the 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 U.S. and Britain only support uh, Arab national nationalist countries that have color revolutions. They only support the rebellions there, not in the GCC. Um, so it's interesting that, and so they kind of got the Gulf monarchs where they want them, don't they? But your final thoughts, Basil. Well, that's right. Then, you know, uh, Biden's continuing, Blinken are continuing to court these despots, you know, in the Arab Emirates and uh, and in Saudi, but the Saudis have signed on to the convention lawsuit. Apparently, Jackson Hinkle uh, has just uh, published a list on X of the countries that have endorsed South Africa's genocide convention lawsuit. Now, I don't know whether that endorsement includes providing lawyers, providing any kind of material support, evidence, or anything, or whether it's a sort of vaguer statement of support. But the list is now as follows: Malaysia, Turkey, Bolivia, Nicaragua the Maldives, Venezuela, Namibia, Jordan, Morocco, Iran, Bangladesh, Pakistan, and Saudi Arabia. I'm surprised that Algeria isn't on that list. Um, but it's nevertheless, uh, you know, an increasing number of countries. And uh, the hearings, of course, begin tomorrow. Jeremy Corbyn, former leader of the Labour Party, is to join the South African delegation. Um, which uh, is uh, why, of course, uh, they went to such efforts to stop him becoming prime minister. You get they're going to be screaming anti-Semitism uh, with with Corbyn in the papers. I'm sure the tabloids are going to find a way to spin that. This uh, <laughs> it's going to be crazy. Jeremy Corbyn is like the, the ultimate dog whistle now uh, for 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 the lobby. I mean, they're just going to go nuts. That'll be interesting yeah. to see how that plays out in the media. But uh, Basil Valentine, so, finally, quickly, the anti boycott bill is back in the House of Commons here in the UK. Oh, really? Um, section eight point seven, known as the Israel Clause, explicitly protects Israel from being excluded and creates a permanent ban on public authorities ever boycotting Israel. Which, I mean, how's that? How do you square that if they're found guilty of genocide? It's called it's getting very ridiculous. It's called it's Western democracy. It's called Western democracy, Basil. So uh, there you yeah. are. There you are. We'll keep an eye on that as well. Uh, that's a very important uh, announcement there, Basil Valentine. Thank you very much for joining us on TNT. We'll speak to you very soon.
Thank you, Patrick. There he goes, ladies and gentlemen. That is Basil Valentine, our roving correspondent this week. Listen, we're going to take a break. Top of the hour news headlines coming up. Pay attention, folks. Big news is going to drop. And in the second hour as well, we'll get inside baseball.